we just thank you so much. I know this side of heaven will never understand the enormity of the sacrifice you made. Not just on the cross, but just coming down to live as a human for 30 plus years. And to go through all we go through. And then to ultimately end up nailed to a cross. And all because of us. Because you care about us so much. You love us so much. You want to give us the opportunity to be able to spend eternity in heaven with you. And, and that, that gift of your death and your resurrection is available to, to everyone. And all we need to do is repent of our sins and, and kneel before the throne. And you promise to be faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, Pray today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, we're gathered here in your house, your house of prayer, your house of worship, and we just look forward to what you have to share with us through our pastor. We look forward that we get to come before your throne and worship you and praise you, Lord, with not just, not only our voices, but with every fiber of our being, with all of our heart. Because we are to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, have your way with us. We're all works in progress. We all need some fine-tuning. Lord, whatever you want to do, Lord, we accept it because we know it's, it's always, always for our good. So be blessed, Lord God. Be magnified. Be exalted. We love you and thank you. You first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I stand and worship
sweet words. Amen. How I love you, Lord. Isaiah 57, verse 14 says, And shall say, Cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And Father, thank you for the precious word of God and how beautiful it is that the scriptures, they just speak so personally to us. And as the prophet said, cast away any stumbling block out of our way, Lord. There's many things that try to stand in our way of our relationship with you. Lord, cast them aside. For your name is holy. Lord, if some of us here today need to be revived, the word of God you tell us here, revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite ones. Lord, if it takes us to humble ourselves, to be revived, Lord, may it be so. May it be so. We need you. We need your, your breath of life to just move us and to shape us and to fashion us, to encourage us. In the difficult days in which we live, Father, we're so grateful that we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. Amen. And you've given us a future and you've given us a hope. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Good morning, family. So good to see you. Some folks we haven't seen in a while, grateful that you're back. For those of you that come here faithfully every week, I am just delighted to see you. And, uh, it's such a blessing. We often talk about, uh, Jackie and I, it's just a miracle that anybody comes, and it's just a joy to us, too. So we're so thankful for you. For the Spirit of God in you that drew you here today, and I pray that God would minister to us and, uh, and strengthen us. And we, and we need strength today, don't we? We need spiritual strength, and the strength that we need, God has shown us exactly where it comes from. It comes from His Word. And we're going to be talking about the Word of God today, the Bible, and how beautiful it is, and why it's so real and true, and so on. Um, we're continuing on in Acts chapter 20. And today, just one verse, verse 20, and it's a continuation of where we began last week, the heart of service, this is part two. Acts 20, verse 20, it should sound kind of familiar, 2020, All right, what, what, what does that relate to you when, we, when you hear the words 2020? You see clearly, not the TV show, but we see clearly, good vision. And that's what the Lord wants us to have today, clear vision, clear vision of his word without doubting that it is his word, and he's given it to us for our blessing, for our growth, and so that we can get to know God better, so we can get to know Jesus better. That's why it's so important, and Paul's going to encourage these Ephesian elders, you guys got to teach the word of God, because that's where the strength is. So it's important that we honor the Word of God. We esteem the Word of God because it's our source of truth, absolute truth. And in a day when so many doubt the Word of God, discount the Word of God, try to tear apart the Word of God, you know what? The Word of God stands forever. Amen. And we're not to alter it. We're not to add to it. We're not to take away from it. We stay close to it, and we study it. But to recap just a little bit, remember Paul the Apostle, he's on his third missionary journey, nearing the end of it, and his desire is to get his way to Jerusalem as quickly as he can because he wanted to celebrate the Passover there. But on his way, he stopped in the city of Miletus, and while in Miletus, he sent a message to the leaders of the church at Ephesus to come to him. He said, I want to meet with you. I need to speak with you. And they did. They went to Miletus to meet with him. And his intention in speaking with them was actually twofold. First, he knew he would never see them again. So this is kind of a farewell message to them. 
and for them, but also, and most importantly, to establish the groundwork for proper church leadership. And as Paul shares with these men, these leaders, it's foundational to them to do what Paul has asked them to do because that produces a healthy church. Biblically based, I'm talking about now. So he provides this final exhortation and instruction to them. And not only does Paul instruct them, but he instructs us also. He doesn't instruct them how to grow a church. Never said, here's how you prepare a sermon. Here's how to have an effective outreach program. This is how to organize a church or even how to be an effective speaker. No, in those days, no one considered those things to be important. Important enough to even talk about. He doesn't even mention them. But oftentimes today, we think differently, don't we, in society? Of what a church should be? We, we think those things just mentioned are the most important. The most important in advancing the kingdom of God and needful in growing a healthy church. Today's church measures success in terms of dollars and attendees. I can't tell you how many times, you know, when, when someone learns that, yes, we, we have a, a church that, that we lead and so on and, and so forth. How, the first question, how many people go to your church? Thinking that maybe more is better. Maybe it is, if God wants it that way. Maybe it isn't. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. So if Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, then he better be central to everything that we do. And his word is central. Jesus is the word made flesh that dwelt among us. So we focus in on his word. When Jesus addressed the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he commended the churches. He also corrected the churches but neither in his commendation nor correction, never once mentioned attendance as part of any measure of any kind. Never. If a church is large, praise God. If a church is small, praise God. You see, numbers aren't important to him. What's most important to him and what he is interested in is faithfulness. You know, Paul would write, give, him, give us faithful men. We need to be faithful. He's interested in us being faithful to him, his word, and his ministry so that he, he receives the glory due his name. This isn't my church. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. This is his body. And I'm so grateful that he's here with us today. Last week, Paul had, as we shared, Paul spoke of personal integrity, his manner of life, and how important it is in ministry. We also looked at the importance of realizing we are bondservants. We talked a lot about being a bondservant, a bondslave, or a doulos in Greek. And I say this, it's a privilege to serve doing whatever Jesus asks us to do. It's a privilege. It's not like we got to do it. It's we get to do it. I've heard it said that serving as a leader is a step down. No task is too small or menial. If there's papers in the parking lot, I just can't walk by them. If I see a toilet needs to be cleaned, I can't say that's so and so's job can't ignore these things. When I have the opportunity to share God's word, I embrace it, and I'm thankful for it. It just doesn't matter what the need is. I, you know, I've heard well-meaning people say, you shouldn't be doing that. My answer is, why not? Why not? It's all part of serving the Lord. See, there's not to be a sense of entitlement or a sense of self-importance. Leaders must do anything that needs to be done to serve God's people. You see, there's no celebrities in the kingdom of God, only Jesus. None of us are too important to fill any need that will serve God's people in a moment's notice. 
<clears throat> excuse me, and because I belong to Jesus and you belong to Jesus, he can spend our lives in whatever way he wants to spend them. What's that speak of? It speaks of a surrendered life. You know, Jesus said, not my will to his Father, but thy will be done. And ought that not be our prayer as well? And sometimes, let's face it, we don't feel like doing certain things. But if we are living a life that's surrendered to Jesus and we say, Jesus, if this is your will, give me your heart to do this, whatever it is you might ask me to do. And you know, that crashes against a culture that promotes and thrives on self-importance. Jesus is the name to be high and lifted up. We are the sheep of his pasture. We're just sheep. And he's a good shepherd that loves us and cares for us. Well, Paul continued in this passage. We Just a quick recap there. And today, the third thing we're going to touch on is Paul's insistence on the essentials. The first essential we see in verse 20, and here's what he said. How I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. He said, I've held nothing back. In other words, truth abounds. Paul would speak the truth, speak it in love. He said, I've held nothing back that was helpful to you. He showed them and he taught them the word of God. That's what's profitable. No substitute for truth. And proper heart of service must include truth and it must be shared. And here's why. To withhold the word of God and focus on other things, it's actually unloving. It's unloving. It's like a doctor giving a false report. It's unloving. That's why Jesus said, I've given you the truth. Paul said, the, the apostle said to Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. You see, only the word of God can change a human heart. I can't do it. You can't do it. I've tried it. You've tried to change a person, and, and how did it end up? A little bit of contention, huh? Only the word of God can change a heart. God can, through his word, He's changed me. He's changed you. He didn't twist my arm. He invited me into a relationship with him by his Holy Spirit and through his Son. And when the Word of God began to penetrate my heart, things began to change. And I'm so grateful that it's God, the one that's initiated the change. It's not self-initiated. It's God that initiated it. And he said, you just follow me. You know, and it's a privilege to follow God, isn't it? He said, follow me, follow me, follow me. And there's a good reason for that, because he always leads in the right direction, doesn't he? And sometimes we want to venture off in our own direction, and, and what do we have? Well, we have minds that go crazy thinking about it, because we're not necessarily trusting completely in the plan that God has laid out for us. It may not make sense to me, it may not make sense to you, but it makes perfect sense to God. And he's taken you, he's taken me in and through places that we probably never even suspected. But then you look back and say, thank you, Lord. You've done this. You've strengthened me. You've given me purpose. You've given me joy. And you've given me hope. And we need hope today, don't we? Where do we find hope? In a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul's encouraging these Ephesian elders. He said, this is what I do. I've taught you. I've esteemed the word of God. And this is what they're to do too. And this is essential to the church. The second essential that Paul speaks of is found in verse 21. And we're not going to study this today, but that'll be next time. And it's about repentance. Repentance is vital. He said here, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, many, many folks are afraid to preach repentance. But we're going to talk about how important it is. 
And Paul's saying that's important. The word of God is important. Repentance is important. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16. And he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. He said, Timothy, it's all Scripture is inspired by God. How much of Scripture is inspired by God? All. If you like to write in your Bible, circle it big and bold. All Scripture. And it is given by inspiration of God. Well, what does that mean? What does the inspiration of God mean? It means that it's divinely breathed. It's the breath of God. You see, as you hear my voice, it's because the air is passing from my lungs over my vocal cords, which vibrate and create a sound. And of course, those sounds are shaped by my tongue and by my mouth. So you're hearing what I'm breathing out. The same with the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And the breath that God used when he gave us the Scriptures is the same breath that he breathed when he breathed life into Adam. The exact same one. Genesis 2-7, it says, And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's the same breath of God that he breathed into Adam and he breathed into his word, and his word is alive. It's not dead. His word is alive. That's why Hebrews 4.12 tells us this. For the word of God is quick or alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Think about that for a second. How many of you can discern the thoughts and intents of another person's heart? We think we can, but we don't. We can't. What does? It's the Word of God that digs deep in, right? And starts to expose the things that need to be exposed, blesses the things that need to be blessed and expanded, and it's only the Word of God that does that. The breath of God is alive. So the Scriptures are inspired by God. God breathed, and they find their origin in God himself. They're not the result of human genius, or any other form of inspiration. 2 Peter 1.21 tells us this, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Moved by the Holy Spirit, authored by the Holy Spirit. In all Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation is inspired by God. Every word that God gave us is inspired. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 4, verse 4, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So, the scriptures are God-inspired. Now, I want to talk about the Bible, which is the word of God. Do you agree with me that it's a unique book? And when I use the word unique, it means several things. It's one of a kind. It is superior to all others, and it's unusual in that it provides everything that we need. There's no other book that can provide everything that you need. And there's several things we can highlight that make the Bible unique. First, it was written over thousands of years. Second, it was written by 40 authors, kings, poets, Military leaders, shepherds, fishermen, tax collectors, musicians, and scholars. God used the likes of them. They held the pen, and he moved it. He breathed life into it, and he used all kinds of folks. Third, it was written from several different locations within three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Fourth, the manuscripts were written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Fifth, the Bible addresses all of life issues without a contradiction. Some people say the Bible contradicts itself. 
they dig deep enough, they'll realize, no, it does not. Sixth, the Bible provides a description of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And through the word of God is how we get to know Jesus Christ, how we learn of God's plan of salvation, how we learn that this is a love story that God has written to us and for us to express his heart of love so that we can come to him through his son Jesus and receive forgiveness of sin. And it's that love that draws us right to the cross, the place where we can, be, we can become saved. Now, what other publication can claim such a list? People magazine? I don't, I don't think so. There, there is none. The Bible is therefore unique. And its unique characteristics aren't accidental. God has designed it. Every word, letter, punctuation mark to have meaning and purpose. And there's only one way for all these unique characteristics to come together, and that is divine inspiration. Yes, the scriptures are inspired by God. God breathed. Well, how did God accomplish this? How did God get his word into the hearts and hands of men? There's three ways God did this, at least that I want to touch on today. First, by revelation. It means that certain men heard from the Lord to, as, to do exactly what to write. And he did it through various agents. He spoke through the angels. Genesis chapter 18 and 19, angels gave a message to Abraham and then to Lot. God spoke in an audible voice as an example. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt die. So God spoke audibly. God also spoke in a still small voice. And we just studied this in 1 Kings chapter 19, 12. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, what? A still small voice, the importance, family, that we have of sitting quietly at the feet of the Lord. You know, when I went outside this morning, there was an incredible stillness outside of our home. And normally we hear a little bit of road traffic from Route 104. We live about a mile north of Route 104. And I called Jackie. I said, step outside for a minute. There's no wind. There's almost no noise. What a perfect time just to sit still and listen for the voice of God. And he will. He'll speak to your heart. God, speak to me. Your servant wants to hear. So he does speak in a still, small voice. God speaks through nature. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. Did you ever look up into a star-lit sky? I'm sure you have. Or see the glory of a full moon. The beauty of the sun. The planets. The heavenlies, the heavens declare the glory of God, and a firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. He's saying, those things speak about me, and night unto night showeth knowledge. God can speak through dreams. Oh, he's spoken to me through dreams before. I've shared some of those with you, and, you know, each and every time God gave me something in a dream, it's like, it's, it's going to happen. And it has. Well, in Genesis 28, 12 and 13, it says, And he, speaking of Jacob, dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest. To thee will I give it and to thy seed. What's he talking about? Israel. God spoke through visions. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And think about this. The entire book of the revelation of Jesus Christ was given to the apostle John, how? In a vision. We have that record before us. So God got his precious and holy word into the hands and hearts of men by revelation. And second, God got his 
holy word into the hearts and hands of men by inspiration. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Paul the Apostle knew his writings were inspired. He said this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, In my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in what? In demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He said it all came from the Holy Spirit of God. He inspired me to write these things. Peter believed his writings were inspired. Again, 2 Peter 1, 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of, men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So Peter understood that. He understood it all came from God, but he also understood that Paul's writings were inspired. And he said this in 2 Peter 3.15, in account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, speaking of divine inspiration, hath written unto you. So we believe all the words of the Bible are inspired according to 2 Timothy 3.16. But also, again, Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. In John 6.63, there's a lot of scripture verses today. It is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh, profiteth nothing. Excuse me. It is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh, profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. How important the word of God is. How valuable. And the Lord speaks to each of us. Not that we'll, we'll receive a new revelation or inspiration, but he speaks to us in another way through illumination. God uses word to speak to the hearts of individuals. This is the Holy Spirit causes his life, excuse me, his light to enter into the heart of man. And then man begins to see ourselves as we are, as God sees us. You know, before I came to Christ, I thought it was okay. If someone asked me if I'm going to heaven, I'd say probably. Don't know for sure, but yeah, I think I'm okay. But then the light of God's word illuminated my heart and caused me to see, you know what, I'm, I'm just a, a wretch. I'm a sinner. And God doesn't point those things out to us to beat us down, but to do what? To, to lift us up. That I can come to him with all my sin, with all my shame, and know that, God, you see what's in there, and yet you still love me. And you're so ready to forgive me. So that's the illumination that we receive. And praise God for that. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit is also what helps us to understand the Scriptures. John 16, 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He's a great teacher. You know, before you came to Christ, and I know before I came to Christ, I would pick up a Bible every once in a while. And I'd look at it. Didn't mean much to me. Looked like a lot of black writing on white pages, some red. You too, Ruby? Yeah. Probably most of us. It didn't mean an awful lot. But, you know, when the Holy Spirit of God came into my life, came into my heart, it's like, there's something precious here. There's something beautiful here. There's something life-changing here. And again, it's a love letter that God has written to me to bring me to Christ. So, we, so far, we've looked at how God got his word into the hearts and hands of men. Revelation, inspiration, illumination. Well, how can we be absolutely sure that the word of God actually came from God? How can we know that? Well, first, it does come down to faith. You know, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. See, as we spend time in the word of God, what's it do? It builds our faith, doesn't it? That's why it's so important, and Paul's emphasizing this to the Ephesian elders. You've got to be in the word. You've got to be teaching the word. 
And it's not a blind faith because God's word stands up to several important tests. And people test his word all the time. Well, think about archaeology. Archaeology proves it. I'll share with you a, a few things that archaeologists used to boast that the Bible is full of errors because there's no independent historic evidence that's been found to substantiate its claims. But since, there's been a whole bunch of archaeological discoveries that prove it otherwise. You see, archaeology provides amazing proof in the accuracy of Scripture. And after 200 years of archaeological excavation, there's been some incredible discoveries that cover about a 1,000 years of Bible history from the time of King David to the time of Jesus. And I'm just going to name two for you. If you want some more, you can go to Answers in Genesis and you'll find some more. But there are many people that argued that King David, he, he never existed. But a piece of stone called the Tel Dan Steel from the years 900 to 850 B.C., it was found. And that was a stone monument of a great and important event that the rulers of Egypt and Israel used to record a great event or victory. They would write it on a stone. And here's why this Tel Dan steel is so important. Inscribed in this stone are these words, and we're going to bring a photo up for you. It says, the house of David. Thousands of years old. That inscription that's highlighted there, it says the house of David. I didn't type that in, by the way. Another archaeological discovery, it refuted the argument of many quote-unquote scholars that, that said that Pontius Pilate, no, no, he never existed. But in 1961, archaeologists discovered that the, the Pilate dedication stone that was used in an, a Roman amphitheater in Caesarea by the sea. In fact, we saw this when we were in Israel in 2017. And it clearly inscribes Pilate's name. And there's another photo of that one coming up. You can't really read that, but it is Pilate's name. Clearly inscribed his name, thus putting to silence those that argued against the Gospels and Pilate's existence. So there's an archaeological test. There's also a scientific test. The Bible passes the scientific test. There's many scientists that have mocked the Bible and claim it's inaccurate. Well, the Bible, first off, never claims to be a scientific textbook. But science comes from God. According to Psalm 119, verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endures forever. So every scientific reference in the Bible then, according to Psalm 119, verse 160, it has to be correct. It has to be accurate. And the word of God for centuries has been brought under scrutiny by skeptics, but you know what? The word of God has never failed. Never. God was present in the creation. So he clearly understands what he did, and he reveals it to us through the scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. The science of astronomy. It was once thought that the earth was flat, in spite of the fact that the Bible clearly states it's round. Isaiah 40, 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. It describes a sphere. And the earth would appear as a circle from any point in space. But it's a sphere. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Think about this for a minute. If the earth was flat, that wouldn't exist. You couldn't even say this. But as far as the east is from the west... How far he has removed our transgressions from us. Take picture, picture of the earth. Take picture a globe with the axis of rotation from north to south. So if you're at the equator and you move north, as soon as you hit the North Pole, guess which direction you're headed? You're headed south. You get to the South Pole, you keep on going, then which direction are you headed? You're headed north. So north and south meet, but east and west never meet. You could be traveling east for your entire life and you'll never go west. You can travel west for your entire life and you'll never stop going west. 
East and west never meet. That's how far, praise God, that's how far he's removed our sin from us. Never to be met again. It was thought in the early days that the earth rested on four pillars. Now science tells us something different. It's suspended in space. Of course it is. Job 26, verse 7. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. In the book of Colossians, it tells that Jesus holds all things in place. It's the power of God that keeps things where they are. With regard to the science of geology, the Bible speaks of sea currents. Psalm 8, verse 8, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. In other words, God said there's currents in that water. In biology, the Bible speaks of the circulation of blood. Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. The Bible also speaks of the need to quarantine to isolate disease and sickness. Regarding circumcision required on the eighth day from birth, that was God's law. Science has learned that on the eighth day, vitamin K is at its peak, bringing about blood coagulation above 100% of normal. And it's the only day in the life of a male that this is the case. God knew because God designed. So the Bible passes the archaeology test, the science test. It also passes the prophecy test. There are literally thousands of prophecies in the Bible. And up to present, every single prophecy that was made has been fulfilled with 100% accuracy. Not one of them that has been fulfilled has been a mistake. I'll give you just a few regarding Jesus Christ. First, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Here's what it says. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Very specific in Bethlehem. Another one. Jesus would enter into Jerusalem on a colt. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a coal, the foal of an ass. He said he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Guess what Jesus did? He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Third, Jesus would be betrayed by 30, for 30 pieces of silver. That's what they paid Judas to betray Jesus. Zechariah eleven twelve. And I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. These aren't accidents. God said they would happen. That's just three. Three out of 353 prophecies of Jesus Christ. And the likelihood or odds of fulfilling only eight of those prophecies, it's staggering. I'm going to share this with you. I've shared it before, but it's really, it's staggering to me. <clears throat> There's a math professor named Peter Stoner. And he calculated the odds of eight prophecies being fulfilled by one person. And in order to spare you the number that's incomprehensible, he provided an illustration. Here's what he said. He said, take enough silver dollars to cover the state of Texas. And mind you, the state of Texas is 268,597 square miles. That's big. He said, cover it two feet deep with silver dollars. I don't know how many silver dollars that is, but it's a lot. Then Mark 1. Mark 1, mix them all together throughout the whole state of Texas, and then send somebody to Texas to pick one up without even looking. The odds of Jesus Christ fulfilling just eight prophecies about himself was be as that man that sent to Texas retrieving the marked coin. Nearly impossible. So the Bible passes that test. 
archaeology, geology, science, prophecy. You might be wondering, why are you spending so much time on this today? Well, Paul told the Ephesian elders that the word is profitable to them and it must be taught. We're talking about the heart of service. And we really don't have a heart of service if we're not teaching the word of God. Because once again, it's the word of God that changes a life. The word of God that brings a person to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's the word of God that brings a person to the place of salvation. We can't withhold it. We cannot withhold what is good and what is profitable. You see, the Bible can be trusted. No matter what the skeptics say, God cannot lie. And his word tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So I thank him for the perfection of his word. I'm thankful for this record that he has given us, the Bible, the word of God. And I'm thankful he's revealed the sin of my heart and made it clear to me that I need a savior. And I need to stop trying to save myself, thinking somehow I deserve heaven based on my merits. When God would look at me and he said, you know, you've, you've sinned against me. And I love you. And I want what's best for you. I need you to admit, Dan, that you're a sinner. And you need forgiveness. And there came that day when I bowed, be when I bowed before the Lord confess my sin and receive Christ and I was saved. And you know, I'm also thankful that God shed the light of Christ through the scriptures. That he's given us his word that he illuminates the scriptures to our hearts so that mankind, sinful mankind can come to him and be saved. He is the solution you know, the world is constantly looking for, for solutions to the troubles that we face today. Let me ask a question. Are things getting any better based on man's solutions? I don't see it. Now, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. We need his word. 2 Timothy 3.15 and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I want to make one more important point this morning. Notice the number of prophecies regarding Jesus Christ. It was 353. Now, why is that important? Here's why. Jesus is the word made flesh that's dwelt among us. And he is central to all the scriptures. He is central to everyone. In a volume of the book, it is written of me, he said. And God desires that each person come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, for he alone is Savior. There is none other. It's Jesus. Hebrews 10, 7. I just spoke this. Then, I, then said, I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will. In John the Apostle in chapter 28, or 21, verse 25, he said, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And he said, amen. And I say, Amen. You see, we need the word of God so that we can get to know Jesus. Some people think it's just a book. But you know, it is a book, but it's unique for the reasons that I shared with you. It shows us God's heart. It shows us how much he loves. It shows us how much he cares. It shows us that there's consequence to sin. It shows that there is judgment for sin. And you know, apart from Christ, I would have to stand before God's holy throne as a sinner and receive the judgment due me. Because God in his perfection, yes, he's perfect in love, but he wouldn't be perfect if he didn't judge perfectly, would he? You know, if someone broke into your home and did damage or robbed you, you would expect justice to be served, right? right. We would expect that. 
And we should expect that from God too. And you know, for those that have trusted in Jesus Christ, the payment and the judgment for my sin and for all those that have come to Christ, we'll never see. We will never see that because it was placed on Jesus on the cross. He died for my sin. He became my sin. He became our sin so that you and I can become his righteousness. And what an incredible gift. He becomes my sin, I become his righteousness. It really doesn't get much better than that, does it? No, we need Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that the punishment that I deserve, I'm never going to get. And it breaks my heart to know that Jesus, he suffered everything that I should be suffering. But then again, I'm grateful because I know I'm heaven bound. And I will one day see Jesus Christ face to face in heaven. And yes, the the marks of his crucifixion will be on his hands and in his side. We'll look upon him whom, whom we have pierced But then again, it's to be that ever-present reminder when we're in heaven how we got there. It wasn't because of us. It was because of him. The word of God is so beautiful. It's God's heart. And God doesn't want any person to miss out on Jesus and his love that moved Jesus to lay down his life for us. So it brings me to a question, an important question. Have you received Jesus? Have you received forgiveness of your sin? If you haven't yet humbly come before him and admitted that you're a sinner, today's the day. It's time. It's the only place of hope. It's the only place of promise. And you know, when we see the world around us crumbling, and it is, isn't it crumbling around us, doesn't it seem? We can look up and know that our redemption draws near. And we can look up and know that, yes, this is all very difficult stuff, and we do our best by God's grace to navigate this life, but we have a living hope, don't we? That no matter what happens around me, no matter what happens in this world, I belong to Jesus, and one day he's going to bring me home. He loves you, he loves his bride. He cherishes his bride, and he's going to pluck his bride out of this before it goes goes completely out of control here on this earth. What a loving God we serve. Have you received Jesus? Do you know, do you know, do you know that when you breathe your last here, you're going to be in the presence of God, enjoying his presence, the joy, the beauty of knowing him and seeing him face to face? Do you know that? If you're anything like I was, I thought that would be okay. I thought, that, I thought I would, but thinking I would isn't certainty. God wants us to be certain. He wants us to know with absolute certainty that we belong to him. And he gives us that opportunity to know that we belong to him. There's a verse in 1 John Let's turn there quickly. First John chapter 5, verse 13. It says, These things I have written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. You see, he wants us to know. He doesn't want us to guess. He doesn't want us to just worry over it. No, he wants us to know that we know that we know. And I tell you what, family, I know that I know that I know I'm heaven bound, and not because of me. It's because of the goodness and the grace of my Savior that loved me and laid down his life for me. Do you know Jesus? Do you know you're heaven bound? Listen, if there's any doubt in your mind, any doubt in your heart, And it's time to ask God to erase any doubts that you may have. Let's pray, okay? So, Father, I come to you this morning, and I thank you. I thank you. I thank you for your love for me. 
I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for the Bible, the word of God that speaks in a way that I know that it's unmistakably you. And you've called me into your presence today. You've shown me that you care, that you're there for me, and that you want to save me. So I come to you this morning and I ask you, God, please forgive me of my sin. Wash it away completely. I place my trust in you. And when I think about my sin, no longer being judged by you because you've purchased me, I I can't help but think of your son Jesus on the cross who suffered, who died, and was buried on the third day, rose again from the grave to new life. And that's the new life you just gave me. I place my trust in you. I ask you to be Lord of my life, the God of my salvation. I surrender my being to you. And I don't even know what that means right now. But help me to understand that more fully every single day. I love you, Lord. I thank you for loving me and for saving me. And I ask that you would help me. You've you've just given me new life. You've breathed new life into me. And I want to live my life for you. Help me to do that, please. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.